Hello and welcome to this podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion Series. My name is Dr. Niall Jefferson and my guest expert today is Dr. Sean Flanagan. Following completion of his ENT training, he spent two further years pursuing post-fellowship subspecialization in otology, neurotology and skull-based surgery, both in Australia with Professor Paul Fagan, then with Professor Mario Sanna in Piacenza, Italy. He has co-authored a book on microsurgery of skull-based paraganglionomas and has published and presented nationally and internationally. He also maintains an active role in the mentoring and teaching of residents and registrars in Sydney. Hi, Sean. How are you? Yeah, good. How are you? Yeah, well. So let's jump into it. To begin with, what is a glomus tumour? Yeah, so, I mean, basically, the, the nomenclature glomus tumour is something that ENT and head and neck surgeons use to describe a vascular tumour of the head and neck. Now, classically, it's a misnomer a little because a, a true glomus tumour is a glomangioma of the capillary system of the, uh, of the skin. And realistically, a glomus tumour is really a paraganglioma. And a paraganglioma is a benign, possibly locally aggressive tumour that arises from the glomus cells, and that occurs throughout the body. And basically, the commonest by far is a pheochromocytoma arising in the adrenal gland. There are extra adrenal, abdominal, thoracic paragangliomas. But I suppose what we call a glomus tumour in the ENT uh, society is a paragangloma of the head and neck. And, you know, the, the, the cells where these derive occur most commonly around the carotid body. There are residual glomus cells uh, in the uh, tympanic cavity and also around the vagal nerve and also around the jugular bulb of the skull base. How common are they? In terms of all paragangliomas, those of the head and neck constitute about 3%. And of those... Probably somewhere between 1 in 30,000 and 1 in 100,000 people per year will present with a tumour such as this. And by far and away, the most common are carotid body tumours of the head and neck, um, followed by those arising in the jugular uh, bulb or jugular foramen, and then much rarer the ones primarily isolated in the middle ear or mastoid system, and also those that arise around the vagal or the 10th cranial nerve. There are some conditions that are associated with paraganglionomas. Yeah. What are they? Uh, this is certainly an evolving field, and traditionally um, these glomus or paragangliomas of the head and neck uh, were thought to be associated with uh, um, conditions such as the MEN1 syndromes, the von Hippel-Lindau syndromes, but realistically they're exceptionally rare. Um, and those that are now familiarly related, and probably about 30% of the head and neck paragangliomas are familiarly related, uh, related to the paraganglioma syndromes. And these are listed as one to four, and they're really related to defects in the succinyl dehydrogenate gene, and which really, and that is an enzyme that's involved in intracellular uh, metabolism, basically. So it sort of reflects the importance of glomus cells controlling the secretion of uh, uh, noradrenaline and picking up and re- helping regulate blood pressure. And really that doesn't, apart from the, the carotid body, that doesn't happen in the adult, but these are embryologic remnants. So they were probably active during embryology and then functionally just disappear as we, uh, as we evolve. Is there any relationship to altitude with these tumours? Um, there's thought to be, and strangely enough, or maybe not, but really there's an increase in incidence of carotid body tumours only 
and th- theoretically much more common in women, so the altitude-based ones. And that probably reflects the, the, the fact that the carotid body itself is still active in the adult. So it's, it's related as a chemoreceptor, uh, as we're describing. But uh, the other paragangliomas, the head and neck, are not, uh, there's no increased incidence with, uh, with altitude. Is there a typical inheritance pattern that's classical of these? Yeah, so I suppose it's, it's classic in its difficulty to track because the commonest transmission pattern is autosomal dominant with what is called maternal imprinting. So essentially what that means is that the, um, the mother can pass on the gene to a male offspring who can then uh, present with the symptoms but then cannot uh, can pass on in the gene to their son or daughter but it won't be active in that generation. So there's theoretically you can have familial um, uh, transmission but can skip numbers of generations at a time. So tracking one's true family history can be very difficult. So moving on from that, how do these patients typically present to an ENT surgeon? Yeah. Well, I mean, basically, uh, they're rare, of course. And the commonest presentation uh, is due to the commonest uh, type of tumour, and that's a carotid body tumour. And basically, that is from a lateral neck mass. So we might find uh, a very slowly growing mass that someone might notice almost incidentally. And it's a classically something that's an expansile mass. Uh, it's mobile in an anterior-posterior direction, but not in a in a vertical uh, direction and uh, they're often though picked up by your GP or other doctors because they're fairly easy to determine. Probably from a, the classic anti-presentation for the other paragangliomas or glomus tumors is really someone presenting with pulsatile tingles. So a sensation of a whooshing sound in the ear and this on itself is a huge topic but basically um, when anyone presents with a, a, a sensation of pulsatile tingles to an ENT surgeon we're investigating them for well, a presence of vascular tumour such as, as a glomus, vascular abnormalities, arteriovenous malformations, uh, and really there's a, there's a stratified workup for any of these patients involving MRA, MRI, MIV scanning, as well as scanning of the skull base, and almost always no pathology is found. But occasionally we do pick up a, uh, a glomus tumour that's deep in the skull base. The other rare presentation but one that's you know fairly classic is looking in the ear and finding a red mass behind the eardrum uh, and this is something that can, that can either be isolated to the middle ear itself uh, or arising uh, from the jugular valve and just poking its head up into the middle ear cleft. You've mentioned a few of the components that make you think that this may be a paraganglionoma. Is there anything else in the history that may suggest that this is a paraganglionoma? So rarely, uh, I mean, it, it's a, a combination of um, uh, pulsatile tinnitus, potentially findings on otoscopy, perhaps development of a conductive hearing loss if there's involvement of the acicular chain. Because these are benign tumours, they're very slowly growing. So even those that arise from the jugular bulb uh, and theoretically have involvement in lower cranial nerves, involvement of those nerves pathologically at presentation is actually very, very rare. And similarly, uh, with the facial nerve, which is closely associated with the jugular bulb, it's actually very rare for these tumours to present with facial nerve uh, involvement. And similarly, they are locally invasive in terms of bony destruction. Um, and whilst they are arising near the otic capsule, that tends to be fairly resistant until late stages. So, yeah, a lot of those potential side effects of these tumours really are, are rarely seen at presentation. So you've got enough in the history that you think someone may have a paraganglionoma. 
You've mentioned some of those investigations, but do you mind running through what you would yeah. look for? Absolutely. And, and again, I suppose common things first, carotid body tumours, we would run a CT or MRI with contrast enhancement. Uh, and really, that's really enough to identify the primary uh, lesion. And we're looking for the degree of involvement of a carotid artery, basically circumferential involvement. And very importantly, due to the multicentricity of certain familial types, making sure that we screen other parts of the head and neck. The other things are to think about, you know, secretion of these tumours. Very, very rarely did the primary head and neck paragangliomas secrete. Uh, and if there is evidence of uh, flushing, hypertension, we always look in the abdomen. It's much more likely to have a, a, a second lesion uh, that's the secreting lesion. I suppose the more common from a purely ENT presentation is those that we think may be arising from the middle ear of the jugular bulb. And really, generally speaking, if there's a suspicion of uh, a glomus tumour, we're going to be running a CT and an MRI scan. Normally, though, if there's an, uh, a finding on otoscopy, a CT scan is the best finding. If that is purely isolated to the middle ear cleft, we're very happy that there's no bony erosion between the middle ear and the jugular bulb. We'd be very happy to keep it at that. If there's any suggestion that this is arising from the jugular bulb, then an MRI with MRV and MRA is very important. Again, for screening purposes, to identify the involvement of carotid artery, but equally as important to assess um, whether there is involvement of the jugular system, so if that's the jugular um, sigmoid system is closed, and to assess if there's any intracranial involvement and, again, the extent of involvement uh, into the uh, parapharyngeal space inferior. Are there any blood tests that you would get? This is a slightly controversial area, and, again, what we're, we're thinking about here is, is a tumour hypersecreting? So generally speaking, in the head and neck, if there's no clinical symptoms of uh, hypersecretion, I, would ha- I, I wouldn't be pushing hard for that to happen. If, however, there's any suggestion of blood pressure fluctuation, then we run uh, some urinary tests looking for catecholamines, and also there's a number of blood tests that we can run uh, looking for evidence of hypersecretion. Now, in theory, the head and neck uh, paragangliomas will only secrete noradrenaline uh, as opposed to adrenaline for the adrenal tumours, um, and you often need a much higher level of noradrenaline to have a similar uh, hypertensive effect. So you've got your investigations, um, you're happy with the diagnosis. If we divide it into the different subsites for the purpose of discussion, what are the principles of management? Okay, so uh, again, carotid body tumours in general terms, because especially if caught at a relatively early stage, surgical excision can be performed with very low morbidity, the general advice is to do that. In fact, is to intervene relatively early, remove the tumour before it causes any collateral damage. As those tumours get bigger, the likelihood of damage to, uh, one, the vasculature, but more importantly to the vagal and the parasit- the um, sympathetic chain start increasing. There's a few caveats here, certainly if there is multiple tumours. So if you've got multiple tumours, then uh, depending on the subside of the other tumour, that might affect a little bit your management from that perspective. And it really comes down to avoiding at all costs any risk of causing bilateral lower cranial nerve injury. The other relatively easy one is tumours that are isolated to the middle ear or the mastoid air cell system. Again, most of these tumours can be excised with relatively low morbidity uh, and most of the time can be excised with restoration of normal function. 
those tumours that are arising either from the vagal nerve or from the jugular bulb tend to be a different kettle of fish. Because most of these tumours present with intact neural function, maybe apart from uh, hearing, then uh, in most cases, excision or removal of that tumour is likely to render the patient worse off initially, i.e. we're likely to have to sacrifice or harm lower cranial nerve function. We're often needing to render the patient uh, with a conductive hearing loss. We often need to consider mobilising the facial nerve, so there's even in ideal circumstances, there's risk to uh, not uh, having a perfect facial nerve function at the end of that. So the principle often here is that of uh, symptom control. If we can manage the symptoms well, uh, we would uh, attempt to observe and watch a lot of these tumours uh, conservatively. Involvement of lower cranial nerves, involvement of the facial nerve, involvement of the inner ear and, uh, in, and significant intracranial extension are all markers for reconsidering that initial conservative approach. Is there or are there classification systems and which do you use? Yeah. So the classic classification system, certainly for the skull-based paragangliomas, is that proposed by FISH. Um, and really, uh, in general principle, the FISH A and B are those isolated A to the middle ear cleft and B to the tympanomastoid system. The C-class tumours are those that arise from the jugular bowl. And in general terms, it describes the degree of involvement of the carotid artery. Now, these are fairly helpful descriptions of the extent of tumour, but are also very limited. In fact, in that they don't describe the involvement of the hearing, the balance, the lower cranial nerves, facial nerve involvement, but with a subtyping, they do describe the degree of uh, intracranial extension, either that being extradural or intradural. So it, it's a good marker and a good uh, way of describing a tumour, but doesn't say a lot to its its um, uh, its clinical uh, importance to that particular patient. You've mentioned fish. When it comes to surgical approaches, what options do we have, accepting that for the limited uh, middle ear types you've already discussed? Yeah. So again, uh, the general principle. So glomus tumours are highly vascular. So no matter where that tumour is, whether it be tiny or extensive, the principles here are we need to get control of both arterial and venous blood supply, both proximally and distally. That's very important for carotid body uh, tumours, so we need to have control of the common carotid and the, the external branches uh, distally and proximally. From a skull-based perspective, and this is where things get a little more technical, but basically for almost all those tumours that arise from jugular bulb, there is a thing called an infratemporal uh, fossa type A approach. And again, the principles of this are control of vasculature. So in general terms, what we talk about when we're doing an infratemporal fossa approach, we transect the ear canal and um, create a blind sac closure. The reason is that we can't preserve the middle ear function and still access the jugular bulb and the carotid artery. You also need to mobilise the fascia nerve anteriorly out of its... Uh, um, uh, temporal bone course, and that normally results in at least a mild degree of facial nerve dysfunction. And the reason for doing that is that we can access the full length of the sigmoid to the jugular bulb in the neck, as well as the carotid artery from the neck into its intrapetrous uh, component. The other issue here is that of 
intracranial involvement. And whilst there's a little controversy here, certainly if there's significant extradural and or intra, or certainly if there's significant intracranial involvement and significant extracranial involvement, we often talk about staging a surgical approach. Things are getting increasingly complicated, I suppose. Uh, as we are s uh, detecting many more of these tumours and realising the slow growth rate, often we are encountering, encountering a situation where we want to have local control but not commit the patient to significant neural sequelae. So often what we are doing is doing partial removals of tumours. Now this can be to clear the mid middle ear uh, area to minimise uh, pulsatile tinnitus. If there's bleeding down the ear canal, we can control that by just purely debulking the tumour and performing a blind sac closure and leaving residual tumour within the jugular bulb uh, to preserve lower cranial nerve function. Adjunctive therapies. Now, there's radiotherapy is an interesting um, modality. Again, in general terms, radiotherapy is an effective treatment to slow or halt the growth of rapidly tur uh, uh, turning over cells. So in a very slow-growing tumour, the efficacy of radiotherapy is relatively poor. But having said that, if we are seeing growth in these tumours where we want control, where the collateral damage of surgery is too high, then targeted or stereotactic radiotherapy uh, can certainly be used as an adjunctive uh, treatment modality. In counselling patients, what do you tell them about the chance of malignancy of this benign tumour? It's very low. Um, there are... Uh, one subtype of the genetic line of these tumours that has a higher rate. But in general terms, we're looking at somewhere between 1 and 3% of the skull-based subtype that have the potential of being malignant. Now, what we mean by that is also a little bit difficult because what how we're diagnosing that is if there is evidence of metastatic spread. So, um, and the, the actual analysis of the tumour itself often does not show any specific histological features except that is now uh, has metastasized to local influence. What are the uh, evolving and potentially future treatments for this condition? Uh, I suppose, I mean, the gold standard any uh, tumour treatment is going to be some form of gene therapy or uh, systemic chemotherapy. Uh, at this point in time, Really, that's not a therapeutic option. And I think we're a long way away from that happening. Uh, I think the evolving or evolved treatment of this is the realisation of the very slow growth rates, our ability to accurately identify and, and monitor growth rates using uh, advanced non-invasive uh, imaging techniques. Certainly, there's been some minor uh, advancements in surgical techniques, and probably this may evolve... Uh, involve uh, potentially stenting of uh, arteries if we really are forced to perform surgery and our ability to reconstruct deficits is probably improving as well. And even for something potentially simple as hearing restoration, the fact that almost always inner ear functions preserved, the use of implantable conducting hearing aids are providing a good level of uh, restoration of function to a lot of these people. There seems to be a monoclonal antibody for everything these days. Is there something yeah. for this? Well... Not that I'm aware of. Now, I could be proved wrong there, but certainly nothing that um, has reached a, a clinically uh, utilisable, if that's a word, um, uh, level. I think that represents a, a good discussion on a lot of the nuances of what is a certainly an interesting topic for ENT people uh, mm. in general. Um, 
I'm going to hand it over to you for the final word, Sean. It's an opportunity to touch on something maybe we haven't discussed or highlight something that we have talked about that uh, encapsulates the discussion. Mm. I suppose from a purely surgical perspective, the management of glomus tumours, I suppose it represents the pinnacle of what we do in terms of the balancing between uh, removing or uh, fixing pathology and minimising collateral damage. They also uh, epitomise difficulty in access um, highly vascular tumours, uh, you need to have optimal uh, exposure, control of the surgical field, and have a whole range of adjunctive treatments at your disposal, disposal uh, including, as we mentioned, radiotherapy, angiography, embolization, awareness of genetics, so awareness of possible multi- multiple uh, tumours, so we don't rush headlong into you know, managing a tumour that may then uh, present with multiple other tumours in the remainder of the head and neck area that is going to place that patient at significant uh, degree of neurological decline. I suppose the, the balance here is that um, as we are operating on fewer and fewer of these tumours, our experience is getting less. So when we do need to operate, it, I suppose it stretches even further the importance of you know appropriate surgical technique. And uh, I suppose coming back to sort of the day-to-day perspective, the importance of having a proper protocol in terms of investigating pulsatile tinnitus, the potential of head and neck uh, tumours, be they benign and, uh, and malignant. And I suppose, you know, the importance of us being able to interpret uh, a wide range of radiologic uh, pathologies at the skull base where, uh, unless we're a, lucky to have a, a multidisciplinary unit, we need to be able to be leading the diagnosis of these tumours and analysis uh, on routine imaging. Thanks, Sean. This has been another podcast in the ENT Expert Opinion series. You can find more podcasts at iTunes or check out the website entexpertopinion.com. Thanks very much. Music.